You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. All right, well, good morning, everyone. It is good to have everyone here this morning. We got people from all over the place. Uh, some which that's really booming, kind of. I don't know. Anyway, uh, some which we may not see again for a while, uh, but that's okay. You're all welcome, and uh, we're happy to share this morning uh, in the Lord's house with you. Uh, please turn to Job chapter 32. Job chapter 32. And it helps when I turn this on. There we go. So, anybody like chocolate milk? Chocolate milk? All right, yeah, come on. It's okay for you adults to admit that you like chocolate milk. Don't be like the 29% of U.S. adults who use their kids as an excuse to buy chocolate milk for themselves, okay? Don't be like that. Fess up, all right? I like chocolate milk, and... uh, Chocolate milk is a seemingly simple product that actually confuses a lot of people. The Center for U.S. Dairy defines chocolate milk as cow's milk with added flavoring and sweeteners. So milk, sugar, chocolate, enjoy, right? How difficult can it be? Well, maybe more difficult than you thought. According to a survey conducted in April of this year, 48%, let me say it again, 48% of U.S. adults aren't sure where chocolate milk comes from. I know. I know. Now, here in farm and ranch country, right, we kind of snicker to ourselves about that. But you think about it, for a person who was raised in a place where the only cow they ever saw was on their plate, uh, it might be a little more understandable, right? Now, maybe you've heard or said as a joke, chocolate milk comes from brown cows. You ever heard or said that, right? Okay. This is terrible. Would you be interested to know that a full 7%, 7% of American adults think that chocolate milk really does come from brown cows? That's no joke. 7%. Okay? So, I know. <laughs> Random, right? Why am I telling you this about uh, people who are confused about chocolate milk? And what does that have to do with the book of Job? Well, in Job chapter 32... We are introduced to a man who apparently was present during the entire discussion between Job and his friends, but nothing has been said about him until now. His name is Elihu, different pronunciation, that's the one I'm going to use, and there's a great deal of confusion about what his role is in the book of Job. Opinions about Elihu range from a buffoon, yeah, there's people that think that. To not as wrong as Job's other three friends, but still wrong. I got that from Nick, uh, who said that's what his Bible college professor said about Elihu. To an exceedingly wise man, to all the way up to a prophet of God. Chapter 32 begins by describing how angry Elihu was at Job and the other three friends. Uh, so some discount his words as provoked by emotion rather than by reason. 
Some believe that Elihu never even existed, and that this portion of Job was added by a later commentator, while others say that Elihu's presence is pivotal to understanding the book of Job. Now, and you thought chocolate milk was confusing. Well, this, this is more so, okay? But we're going to look at that because we're starting in Job 32 through uh, 37. All have to do with Elihu and his words to Job. Today's message is called Elihu, Angry Young Man or Prophet of God. My understanding of Elihu is that he is God's spokesman, preparing Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar for God himself to come and speak in chapters 38 through 42. And I also see parallels between Elihu and the prophet Elijah. I don't know if you ever noticed when you read through uh, 1 Kings... And you get to chapter 17, it says, then Elijah, and he just shows up out of nowhere, right? He just, he's there. And uh, the, both of these men come on the scene without any real background or fanfare. The name Elihu is closely related to that of Elijah. The, Elijah means, my God is Yahweh. Elihu means, my God is he. And they're, they're very similar. And both were mere men who claimed to speak for God. Now, another reason that I lean toward Elihu being a prophet of God is that God does not rebuke him at the end of the book. If you've read Job before, if you've gotten to that point where God does show up and God does speak, and then he comes down to talking to the three friends and talking to Job, God rebukes Job and his other friends, but not Elihu. We have record of Job and the other friends repenting at the end of the book, but no record of or reason for Elihu to repent after he is done speaking. Finally, Elihu seems, seems to take the same position concerning the speeches of Job and his friends that God takes. Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, that's Job and his three friends, they've all been looking at Job's plight from man's perspective. True wisdom requires that Job's situation be examined from God's perspective. And Elihu seems to do this. So let's begin our look at Elihu in Job chapter 32, starting in verse 1. And I won't be reading every verse. I won't be reading most of them as we go through chapter 32 and 33. I'll have verse references on the screen. And uh, you you can uh, follow along with those in your Bible if you want. But here are the first five verses of Job chapter 32. Speaking about Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he, that is Job, was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. Now that's a lot of burning anger, okay? I think we're getting the point here. Whoever uh, actually penned this and wrote it down, it's clear. We got it. The point is made. Elihu is burning with anger four, five, four times in these five verses. His burning anger is mentioned. More important is why. Why was he angry? Well, two specific reasons are given. His anger burned against Job because Job had justified himself before God. Job had literally gone so far as to say, 
and I think I'm using this correctly. I'm righteous, and God is wrong in how he has treated me. He really said that. I'm righteous, and God is wrong. While it is true that Job was a righteous man, his lack of understanding about his situation didn't make God wrong. When tragedy strikes, maybe you've seen this in your life or in the life of, lives of people around you. When tragedy strikes, God is an easy target for blame, isn't he? Why did you do this, God? Why did you allow this to happen, God? And these questions aren't unique to our time. Epicurus, a Greek philosopher who lived in the 4th and 3rd centuries before Christ, said this, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Well, then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing to prevent evil? Well, then he is malevolent. Is God both able and willing to prevent evil? Then where does evil come from? I'm paraphrasing. And is God neither able nor willing to prevent evil? Then why call him God? Now, these statements are still used by atheists today to deny the existence of God. And they strike at the heart of the confusion of Job and his three friends as they attempt to understand Job's situation. But this is the man-centered view of man's existence. Elihu's anger burned against Job because of Job's man-centered view of his own situation. And the second reason Elihu was angry was was because Job's friends could not explain Job's suffering in view of Job's righteousness, but they condemned him anyway. Right? Well, Job, we might not know what all your sin is, but we're sure you have it, and we're sure that you deserve everything that's happening to you now. Uh, And as we've observed so many times, those are some kind of friends, aren't they? But the illogic, the illogic of that attitude is obvious. I mean, try this with your friends. Go ahead, try this with your friend. Insist that you are right about something, even though you don't have a reasonable explanation to back up your assertions. You don't have any you know, facts or alternate uh, explanation, right? See how far you get with that with your friends. So Elihu was uh, burning with anger against Job's friends. Now, I keep referring to Elihu as young like so many things, this is relative. Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many of you think you're still young, right? Uh, I'll raise my hand, but you, know, you don't have to raise yours, right? We do know that he was younger than Job and the other three, perhaps quite a bit. There are verses that we read there said years younger. Up until chapter 32, at least when I read Job, up until I get to chapter 32, I get this image in mind of Job sitting there, with you know, in misery, with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and nobody else is there. That's that's the picture that I've had so many times as I read up through Job thirty-one. But now we find out that Elihu was there the entire time, and who knows how many others? I mean, this is the only one that's mentioned. That doesn't mean there weren't others. But Elihu had kept quiet, believing that the wisdom of age would prevail and provide the answer to Job's situation. And in that, Elihu was disappointed. In verse 9, he says, The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. He doesn't say they don't always. He doesn't say they never understand. He doesn't say they're never wise. He says they may not. And he's very clearly saying that these three, and Job, these four, did not produce wisdom in their discussion. Our belief is that age 
ought to produce wisdom, but it does not always. And I think Elihu was angry because in the discussions between Job and his friends, wisdom did not prevail. And Elihu is frustrated. I mean, he's frustrated because from chapter 3, from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 31, he has sat there and listened and listened. And he's listened some more as Eliphaz speaks and Job speaks and Bildad speaks and Job speaks and Zophar speaks and Job speaks and back and forth and back and forth. He's sitting there, he's just doing this. I mean, at least internally, if not externally, he's pounding his head. Because he's so frustrated. He says in verse 12 that he paid close attention to everything that was said. And his analysis is that the three friends have failed to address Job's claims and concerns. According to Elihu, the three friends have come to the point of saying, All our words are right, but Job won't listen. God will have to deal with him since he doesn't listen to men. They're passing the buck. Okay? That's a pretty lame excuse there. Now, God will deal with Job, but Elihu expected better of Job's three older friends, older than him anyway. So in verse 14, Elihu says that he won't use the same arguments against Job that the three friends used as he sat and listened to the discussion. This need to speak was building up Within him, and I believe that need was prompted by God. Now, the metaphor that he uses in verse 19, you can make your own joke about this, okay? Because the metaphor that he uses in verse 19 is pretty humorous to me. He says, Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins, it is about to burst. Uh, yeah, if I were to be uncharitable, I would say that Elihu's need to speak is a little like interpreting a baby's smile. Sometimes it's just gas, right? Okay. Oh, I feel this building up within me. Oh, never mind. <laughs> no, I'm going to go there. But rather than ridicule Elihu, I want to understand him. He says that he will burst if he doesn't say what's on his heart to say. Verse 8 and 18 of chapter 32, along with verses 4 and 5 of chapter 33, allude to the spirit that God has placed within Elihu. And we'll consider that in the next section. Elihu made it clear that even though he was the youngest, and you know how that goes, you want to show respect to your elders. At least I hope you do. You should. But even though he was the youngest... He would not engage in flattery of the others simply because they were older than he. He'd speak the truth. He might even speak it kindly, but he's not going to engage in flattery. Elihu is determined to tell it like it is. And he says that God, his maker, would take him away if he doesn't. That's a lot of responsibility. You think about that. When you're speaking, and the words that you say, and how they are presented... You're not just accountable to the person to whom you're speaking. You're accountable to God. Was Elihu an angry young man? No, I think he was. I really do. It says that he was, and I, I, I think he was, but I also think he was justified in that anger. He was angry for the right things, or about the right things, and he was angry for the right reasons. So we go on to chapter 33. And... Cover the first seven verses in, in this section. And so we've established Elihu was an angry young man, but it was a justifiable kind of anger, I think. Uh, so then the question, it, was he really a prophet of God? How do we determine whether Elihu, Elihu was a prophet of God speaking on 
God's behalf. Well, I like the parallels to Elijah that I mentioned earlier, but Job chapters 32 and 33 uh, have three other characteristics that I think combine to support the idea that Elihu was a prophet. And first he says in verse 3 that he speaks with pure motives. My words are from the uprightness of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. Now, we all know that pure motives and good intentions aren't enough by themselves to confirm that Elihu is a prophet. How many of you have heard the expression, or maybe even said it, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Yeah, you heard that? I had a Bible college teacher uh, that liked to quote that to me. And I understand that saying, the road to hell is paved with good intention. I get that. But at the same time, I wonder, well, so what is the road to heaven paved with, right? Wouldn't you have to have those same good intentions there? Okay. Um, Good intentions or pure motives may not be enough by themselves, but they are certainly necessary. Whether we're talking about us as followers of Jesus today, or for Elihu as one who was speaking on God's behalf. Jesus said that we shouldn't do our good works to be noticed by other people. But does that mean he told us not to do good works? No. He, he, didn't, he said, don't do your good works to be noticed by other people, but he still commanded us to do good works. And he said it that way because motives matter. Elihu spoke with pure motives, and I, I believe him in that. Now, the second characteristic of Elihu that supports his status as a prophet of God is inspiration. And this is what I was referring to that we, re, that we talk about in the later section. We're here, okay? Uh, inspiration. Let me put verses 8 and 18 of chapter 32 together with verses 4 and 5 of chapter 33. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Now, I realize that others may and will interpret these verses differently. But to me, they say that Elihu claimed to be compelled by God to speak, and that God gave him the words that he needed to speak, and that his arguments would prevail because they came from God. And if all these things are true, they would indeed describe someone who is a prophet of God and who spoke on God's behalf. And that's probably the biggest reason, that and the content of his words to Job, that that I am convinced that he did represent God in this discussion. Now, the third reason I think Elihu was God's prophet is found in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 33. He says, Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. Elihu made it clear that while the message was from God, he himself was just a man. And this is another parallel between Elihu and Elijah. James book of James in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 17, says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I love that verse, because and James, as he's writing about Elijah there, he says, 
You think Elijah was some, you know, special uh, superhuman, that he's different than you somehow, that somehow uh, God did these things through Elijah because he was better than you? No, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Yet he prayed, and there was no rain for three and a half years. Now, the prophets weren't perfect, and Romans 3.23 declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But these imperfect men declared the perfect word of God. And I believe that Elihu's separation of himself from the message indicates that he was speaking as God moved him to speak. He's not that, oh, well, I'm, El- I'm Elihu and I'm, I'm just so much smarter than all the rest of you guys. Uh, here, listen to what I have to say. That's kind of what this competition has been between Job and his three friends up to this point. Oh, I've got a better point than you. No, I've got a counterpoint. That, that, and it's back and forth. And now we have God's perspective represented just through a man, man like any other, but God speaking, I believe. This reminds me of 2 Peter 1.21, which says that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Mere men speaking God's words, one characteristic of true prophecy. And I think Elihu fulfilled this. And then, might be the most significant portion of these two chapters, we get down to where we hear the difference in the message Job 33, verse 8, through the end of the chapter, through verse 33, gives us a better rationale for Job's suffering. Remember Job's perspective. I'm righteous. God's just out to get me. God's my enemy. He's he's, uh, unjust in his treatment of me. He's wrong. Remember Job's friend's perspective. Job, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You deserve everything you're getting. Repent and, and get over it. If we conclude that Elihu is God's prophet, as he addresses Job's situation, then we ought to expect better explanations from him compared to the explanations of Job and his other three friends. It's Job's argument that Elihu first addresses. He says in verse 12, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. After He quotes Job, talking about... I don't have any transgression. I don't have any iniquity. I'm righteous, and God is wrong. Elihu says, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. That may be the heart of the whole thing here. Okay? You have, if you're the kind that underlines or highlights or whatever, you know, mark that in your Bible, write it down, whatever you do, this may be the heart of the whole thing. You are not right in this, Job, for God is greater than man. And this is the beginning of the contrast between Job's man-centered perspective and Elihu's God-centered perspective. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The key words of these verses are in his own sight and in his own eyes. I'll raise my hand already. Maybe you you can identify with this. Does anyone else here find it difficult to be objective about yourself? Difficult to be objective about yourself? Yeah. Me, me, difficult, okay? I look at myself and I go, I don't know, you know? I think I'm okay, right? Yeah. John might look at me and go, 
Not so fast there, buddy. <laughs> Feel free, because I need that, you know. Okay, and I would do the same for you. You know I would, yeah. Yeah, that's why I love you, brother. That's the whole deal right there, right? I think we all share that. I think we all need someone else sometime to set us straight. Elihu points out Job's error by saying God is greater than man. Now, I've quoted it before in this series on Job. It deserves repeating. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You've got to be careful. It's very easy for us uh, to, to say, well, God ought to do this. Right? Or God shouldn't do that. You might not use those exact words. You might. But I bet you've thought those things before. It's much more difficult for us to say, you know, I really don't understand what is happening to me, God. I wish things were different. But you know what I really need. You know what I can handle. You know how to bring me to where you want me to be. Help me to trust in the promise of Romans 8.28 that you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. Now, like Job, sometimes we may want to rail against God as unjust or uncaring But like Elihu, we need to acknowledge that God is greater than we are. We need to trust him to accomplish his purpose in and through us, even when we don't understand what's happening. Now, more than once in this uh, series of passages, I guess I messed that up. More than once in this series of passages, uh, the speeches that we had back and forth, Job has expressed his desire for God to speak to him and to explain himself to Job. Kind of gutsy, but that's what it was. In Job 19.7, we hear Job say, Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. And in Job 30.20, Job says to God, I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. Elihu says that God has spoken. The Hebrew here indicates that it's not just once or twice, but several times. Kind of an ongoing thing. Maybe more uh, once in a while is a, a better way of looking at that. As examples of how God speaks... At least in that time, those days, Elihu mentions dreams and visions, which were widely recognized as channels of supernatural revelation in the ancient Near East. Today, we have something different. We have the inspired Word of God. So dreams and visions may not be needed by God to communicate to man, though God may still use such things where His Word is unavailable. Back in Job 7.14, Job stated that he had dreams and visions that came from God, but he believed that God was using them to terrify him. He's got this antagonistic approach to God. God's my enemy. What if instead, and I think this is Elihu's uh, position, what if instead God was using those dreams to instruct Job in the way that would keep him from pride and from making bad choices? I mean, according to Elihu, this is why God would sometimes speak to someone in a dream or a vision, to keep them from pride, to keep them from turning to the wrong path. Consider this for a moment. We have made mention several times in this series of God's assessment of Job in chapters 1 and 2. Oh, you think of Job, man, here's a guy. He was blameless. 
He was upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. One translation says he shunned evil. You've got to like a guy like that. And I think, maybe not you, but me, I think, I've usually assumed that Job would have continued on that way indefinitely. That's, that's just how he is. That's Job, right? But what if God saw things differently? Hypothetically, what if God knew that Job was headed for a crossroads of decision, at which point Job was going to choose the way of sin and faithlessness? No, he hadn't done that in the past, but maybe he was going to in the future. What if Job's affliction was allowed by God, at least in part, to prevent Job from coming to that crossroad and turning towards sin? And what if the dreams and visions that God gave Job were supposed to keep him on the path of righteousness rather than terrify him needlessly? Well, that's a lot of what-ifs, I know, but it seems plausible to me. At the very least, Elihu has correctly pointed out that God has spoken to Job, even if Job didn't get the message. And then I have to confess, uh, the next couple points, this is the most confusing part of these two chapters to me, so bear with me, please. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount the incident in which Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, right? Jesus replied to them that it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, and that he came to call the sinners and not the righteous. That would be not the righteous in their own eyes. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 1.15. Wait, I've heard this before already this morning, John. Yeah, uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, during opening exercises, John uh, also quoted this verse. 1 Timothy 1.15, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? To save sinners. Right? Well, in verses 19 through 25 of chapter 33 of Job, Elihu makes the case that it is those who are afflicted who need redemption. Well, in a spiritual sense, we know that's all of us. But it is those who are afflicted who need redemption. And I wonder if maybe he means that it is those who are afflicted who understand their need for redemption. We talked a few weeks ago about uh, those who are prosperous and wealthy and how they've got everything they want. And what could we possibly have to offer them through the gospel of Jesus Christ? What? Come to Christ and suffer, right? Uh, why would they come to that? They've got everything they want. And somehow we have to tell them they don't have everything they need. Those who are afflicted understand their need for redemption. And redemption is a gift. It's a grace. It's a mercy to those who are dying, whether you're talking about physically or spiritually. Okay? Now, God is the one who redeems, but it is up to man to accept that redemption. Eliphaz portrays a man who has been redeemed praying to God for acceptance and a restoration to righteousness because now that he's been redeemed, he sees what his situation was and he understands now his need to have that relationship made right. Such a man will then confess that God has been gracious and has not punished him in the way that he deserved to be punished. Now, I don't think we're supposed to read into this a New Testament picture of salvation, but I do think it reflects the New Testament picture of redemption. Christ's sacrifice provided redemption. 
Redemption removes the penalty of sin from those who accept him, Jesus, as Savior and Lord. And those who do accept him understand that they did not deserve redemption. And they rejoice that in spite of suffering, the suffering that they might have experienced, they have obtained eternal life instead of the punishment that they really did deserve. And so I, I, I see the picture of redemption that we find in the New Testament reflected here in what Elihu is presenting to Job. The end of the chapter, end of chapter 33, verses 29 through 33. God is certainly able to prevent or even to end suffering, but he is not always willing. You remember that quote from Epicurus, right? Well, that makes him malevolent. If he's able to prevent it and he doesn't do it, then God's just mean and he just wants you to suffer. Well, God's purpose in allowing suffering can be to turn one away from the path of destruction. God's purpose in allowing suffering can be to provide the illumination of the light of life that we wouldn't get or we wouldn't see otherwise. Suffering, from God's perspective, should always turn us toward God and not away from Him. As God's spokesman, I believe, Elihu appeals to Job to listen to everything that he has to say because Elihu has wisdom to offer and I believe that that wisdom comes from God. So we're going to have a number of three more messages actually that are going to focus on Elihu and his presentation to Job and we're going to learn some more things that Elihu has to say. But we've addressed the question here. So was Elihu an angry young man or was he a prophet of God? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah, right? Elihu was angry at Job and his friends for looking at Job's suffering from man's point of view. Job's friends condemned Job without justification. And Job said, God had become unjust and malicious. Poor me. Well, yeah, the guy's miserable. He's lost his children. He's lost all his possessions. And he's got uh, health issues that he believes he's on the verge of death. But that didn't make God his enemy. Elihu believes that there was a better way to look at Job's situation. That better way is God's way. And Elihu expected Job and his three friends to adopt God's view. They didn't, and Elihu became angry. Sometimes we view that as being self-righteousness. I think Elihu was angry on God's behalf. Because these, these men were so focused on their own ideas and their own views that they hadn't really sought God's answers. As a prophet of God, Elihu spoke with pure motives, relating his God-inspired message, but acknowledging he's only a man, the same as Job. And that's the way God uses us. Not necessarily as prophets. Paul calls us uh, earthen vessels. Uh, Yeah, which can be translated into cracked pots, right? Um, we, we We are fragile. We are easily broken. We're easily corrupted, it seems to me. And God uses us anyway. He uses us in his church to spread his gospel about Jesus Christ in spite of ourselves, right? The message that Elihu brought is that Job's understanding of God isn't right because God is greater than man. And somehow Job seems to have put himself up onto that place of almost equals. I mean, he wouldn't have said that probably if you'd asked him, are you equal to God, Job? No, no, of course I'm not. But he was kind of acting like that 
wanting to call God to account. Elihu urged Job to listen to God's word, to know that God is the source of redemption and restoration, and to obtain the benefit that God wanted Job to have, even as he allowed Job to suffer. If we look at that, and yeah, we're still probably even this far through Job, thinking, that just doesn't feel fair. And when we say that, we're guilty of the same thing Job was guilty of, looking at this from man's perspective instead of from God's. Chapter 33 should have been a real eye-opener for Job all throughout the book so far. And if you read this, just read, sit down and read it you know, in one piece. Man, it's hard to take in all at once. But if you just sit down and read it all in one piece, all throughout the book so far, there has been an outlook of defeat and death by every human being involved. Okay? In Job chapter 2, Job's wife encouraged him to curse God and die. She was done with it. In the cycle of speeches, Job's three friends told him that he will die if he doesn't repent. There's that focus on death. Job has said repeatedly that he would rather die than live. I mean, he just doesn't want to deal with this anymore. They all missed the point of Job's suffering. God didn't allow Job to suffer so that Job would die. We know the end of the story. You go on and read that. God did not want Job to die. God is the giver of life. God wants Job to live. God also wants Job to remain faithful to him and to trust him no matter what. Those are the three hardest words in this. No matter what. But the message of Job 33 is that God offers life even to Job in the midst of his suffering and his focus on death. And I know, I know that God wants you to have that life too. Jesus, God's Son, and the Redeemer of all, talking about redemption, Jesus is the Redeemer of all. He said in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Those who would choose to follow him might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus' death redeems us from the penalty of sin. Through his resurrection, we have access to that abundant, eternal life. And so the question is, if you're not already a follower of Jesus, do you want the redemption that Jesus offers? Do you even understand your need for it? Do you realize that unless that redemption is applied to you, he paid the price! On the cross, Jesus paid the price for you so that the penalty of your sin could be taken from you. Do you understand your need for that? And do you want that? Redemption. I sure hope the answer is yes because we all need that. And so then if you do understand that, your need for redemption, and if you want that redemption, so then the question would be, are you ready for Jesus to be your Savior and Lord? Because that's... Pretty much the next step. I know where I am. I know I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I'm without hope. I want life. Where do I get that life? I get it in Jesus. But only in Jesus. And so if, if you're ready to make that decision, to make Jesus Savior and Lord of your life, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.